Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, just, you know, surviving the end of the the semester as as always. But, you know, I, I think the next time we talk, it will actually be the end and it will be over. So that will be uh, fantastic. And then I can, you know, have a existential anxiety about <laughs> the stake of the world instead of just the stake of my uh, academic career. Um, well, on today's podcast, we are going to keep talking about basically the things that we've been talking about. We're going to check in on the state of the two Senate runoffs. We had the Atlanta Press Club debates that happened uh, last weekend. Uh, John Ossoff debated an empty podium, and Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock actually debated each other in that. So we'll talk about how that went. President Trump came to Valdosta to try to boost the campaigns of Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. So we'll you know, pro- discuss, and I think we're going to disagree on whether or not that was a shit show for those two campaigns. Um, and then the other issue that we've been following that I think is particularly important in this moment in our politics is all of the discourse around whether or not the election in Georgia was rigged. Spoiler, spoiler alert, it was not. But the reaction among Republican officials to this debate and how it shapes their political strategy and, and some of their policy goals related to access to the vote and what is likely to be an attempt to make it harder for people to vote, particularly making it harder for people to vote via absentee ballot. We've started to see some details trickle out about the kinds of things that some Republicans are willing to back in the next legislative session and and how Republicans have sort of wrapped their their politics around this issue. Um, So we'll get to that. But Luke, let's start with the check-in on the Senate race and on the debates that happened on Sunday. Um, Which of these did you find most interesting? David Perdue skipped the debate with John Ossoff. So Ossoff debated an empty podium. Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock actually debated each other. Which of those did you find most interesting? Well, I, I would say the most interesting thing for me out of those two debates would be David Perdue's decision to not show up. It's not surprising since he had telegraphed not wanting to debate John Ossoff even the first couple times he did, uh, and he did particularly bad, and John Ossoff did very, very well, and you know, John Ossoff reported some of his best fundraising uh, numbers, and I saw a lot of activity and energy around his campaign. Uh, when when he debated Purdue previously, and so it, it's pretty clear that the previous debates had been net positives for Ossoff and net negatives for Purdue. I think what's particularly strange to me is it makes sense to say no to like every other debate. You know, like Ossoff, like many challengers, had, you know, challenged Purdue. I, I don't even know how many debates in total, but like at least like five or six or something like that over the course of the campaign. And the Atlanta Press Club, at least to me, it's it's, it's just like it's an institution, right? It is the it is the one that like everyone watches. It's the one that I will always watch, even if I you know I don't catch every single debate. I will always watch that one because, as I've said on this program before, and I promise I am not sponsored by them. I love their format. They always bring really great questioners. They ask great questions, and it's just a really good, high quality debate. The other thing is. Their rules are incredibly brutal to people who do not show up. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've already mentioned the fact that, like, there's an empty podium. But they also, like, keep the format and keep the timing as if both people were there. <laughs> and so what you really do is, you like, if you don't show up, you give your opponent, like, double the time. And you get the opponent, again, because they keep the format. Like, Ossoff got to ask a question to the empty podium, which I am sure, you know, as far as like political moments go, is is pretty viral. I've seen it all over my newsfeed. And so to me, this is just like a bad political decision from Purdue, because I feel like to the extent that he is not a great debater this year, again, which is a strange thing to me, because I thought he actually was pretty good back in 14. I mean, this is just an illustration, I think, of like the strange political strategies that are coming out of the Senate race. And I think this decision illustrates it really, really well, and especially in comparison to what Kelly Loeffler's performance was, because for Purdue, the previous times he debated Ossoff, he basically, you know, like 
should have just held up a sign <laughs> that said like radical li- socialist John Ossoff and never said anything because that's basically what he said for every answer. And, and, you know, I'm not a crook. Like that was the two answers to every question that he got, uh, last time. And like Purdue's calculation was it made more sense for me to just not show up <laughs> than to just do that again. And I think that's a really interesting thing for him. The one thing that was striking about the way John Ossoff handled that debate was he kept coming back to this emerging storyline over the stock trades that Senator Purdue has made. You know, the New York Times reported that Purdue has been the most prolific trader of stocks during the last six years of anybody in Congress. Um, And there's been a lot of reporting looking at the stocks that Purdue has traded in that are uh, in businesses related to the industries and the things he oversees in some of his Senate committee work. Um, There was also a Justice Department investigation into his trades for one company. Uh, Justice Department officials ultimately decided not to press charges uh, for insider trading in that case. Yet. and then that, uh, that 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 was the other like astounding part of this uh, for me because as I have said, it's just like Ossoff has gotten so much better at everything to do with campaigning throughout this cycle, and I, I, I've been th- very impressed. And one of the most impressive arguments, in my opinion, was this one on this issue because it is actually I think very accurate to the situation, which is that we're still learning things about what David Perdue was doing with his trading activity and when asked a very tough question uh from from the reporters you know that like if ossoff conceded the fact that david perdue had been exonerated in that one case and he's like no i don't concede that because really the only thing that has happened is he has not been indicted yet (laughs) And, and it's just like it's a really hard argument to counter especially when you're not there uh, but I, don't, I yeah, I thought that was the most important thing was that the fact that he wasn't there to give his nominal, I have been totally exonerated. I did not oversee the day to day things with my trades. You know, his his campaign does have responses to these questions that are sort of the general thing you would expect. But the fact that that wasn't there at all. And then Ossoff kept pinning Purdue's absence on Purdue's fear of incriminating himself related to these issues, I think just made those attacks sting that much worse. And then on top of that, he then layered in everything else about um, how that anti-corruption message is, is tied into other themes of his campaign on, on issues of campaign finance and on um you know, issues of healthcare. These are some themes that we've talked about before. And then he really sort of landed all this stuff in the best way I thought was he kept returning back to stimulus checks and the pandemic and the need for Congress to provide stimulus. And previously Purdue had been saying to these points, um, you know, we provided stimulus, we provided the paycheck protection program, we did all these things to save businesses. And he was also absent to not say those things. And so people watching this debate, who are concerned about their economic features and about the resurgence of the pandemic, they don't get Purdue's side of this at all. And instead, they get John Ossoff asking, where is everybody's stimulus checks? And what have you been doing, David Purdue? Yeah, and I, I just think... <laughs> It's just a bad decision. Like, uh, you don't have to say yes to every single debate someone challenges you to. I, I sincerely believe that because at a certain point, like, they can be just, like, pointless, right? Like, you know, if you have, like, four debates in two weeks, like, you're not going to say anything new. You're not going to get asked a new question, probably. But, like, you do the Atlanta Press Club debate in Georgia. Uh, you just don't, you just don't not come to it. And it's for all these reasons that I just think even Purdue's worst answer <laughs> would be better than silence because, you know, even like as Ossoff was like saying these things of like the reason you're, I mean, like one, he could not have made the argument that the reason he's not here is he's afraid of incriminating himself. But two, even if he tried to make a similar argument, you know, if he, if he was just pointing out the fact that like he hasn't been indicted yet, like Purdue could be muttering under his breath. That's not true. And like, I think that is like worth it <laughs> compared to not showing up. And I mean, it's just, I think it's just an incrimination, not even of like David Purdue more than it is of his campaign team and his staff as like someone who works on a campaign. Like if I had to go to one of my clients and say, 
I literally don't think you should show up because we have no good arguments for you and we can't think of anything good for you to say. And so it would be better to give your opponent the mic for 30, you know, like for an hour. We think that's better. That's a really bad place to be, I think, for a campaign. I mean, maybe they just think like none of their voters are going to see this and it's just going to help us off and help him fundraise. But like, it's going to do that anyway. Like I've seen so much energy uh, out of out of that debate way more than the uh, warnock Loeffler one. So, I, I mean, I'm not, like, going to say, oh, it backfired, and this is why he lost the race. But, like, it just, it definitely, it's not it's not a good move, and I hope he gets punished for it in the future, because, you know, politicians, especially U.S. senators, are so rarely challenged by the local state media that, you know, the states they represent, they, they deal with the press in D.C. a lot, but they don't get nearly as much local stuff. And I, I think this is one of the places where, off is particularly strong of just like this dude thinks he's entitled to this Senate seat and like he's never like if he doesn't show up this time like he's never going to show up again if he runs again and you know decides to be senator until he's 94 like he's not going to show up ever again if he gets away with not showing up this time two pieces of information that i've come across that i think are interesting and highlighting sort of the divergent strategies in these two races and why we may be taking two different paths to ultimately the same destination, either two Democrats winning or two Republicans winning. Republicans have have telegraphed in the press that their strategy is actually going to be to elevate Raphael Warnock in this race and to aim most of their attacks at him. Um, and so in some ways, Purdue's absence from the debate partially plays into that because the only competitive debate was the one that Warnock was involved in. Also, I've noticed that you actually have a slight gap in the current runoff polling. This is small, and so maybe this is not all that significant. But in the polls conducted since the November 3rd election, Ossoff leads Purdue by an average of 0.3 percentage points in those polls, while Warnock actually leads Leffler by an average of 2.1 percentage points. Um, the fact that there's any difference at all, I thought was kind of notable, even though that's not a huge difference. Well, re real quick, I, I, I jump in there, Kyle. I, I, it's a consistent difference, right? Like it is one that has been over time. And I think it actually makes a lot of sense to me that that difference exists. So I, I, I would I would say, it, it, even though it is definitely within margin of error, since it is so consistent, I, I think there is a slight edge that Warnock has. And so I, I think we should take at least for a given that the Republicans believe that. Yeah, yeah. And so I think I was actually teeing these up, these things up for you a little bit, Luke. Does that tell you anything about the where this race is headed, the the Republicans telegraphing that they're going to target Warnock, leaving the only competitive debate to be the one that Warnock was in, and the fact that Warnock is a polling leader relative to where Ossoff stands against Purdue? So I think Purdue would have made his decision to not show up regardless of, of this polling discrepancy. I, I, I really do, just based off of how badly the previous debates went for him. Um I, I think it is a smart strategy for them because, and, and I definitely think it is what is happening on the ground. Because I will say, since the November third election, the amount of negative Ossoff ads I've seen have gone down tremendously. I mean, just like way, way down. Because I was seeing them all the time, and now I'm seeing a lot more negative Warnock ads. And I think the reason for this is and we we have hit on this before but it's become a lot more clear now that we've had more polling is it seems what has happened and this is very predictable just with how the jungle primary was going is that like warnock really didn't get attacked by anyone until after november 3rd and so he just like doesn't have that high of negatives and in fact his favorability is higher than any of the three other candidates which i think we've mentioned before and i think it's really just because like what is your like 10 second impression of the guy? It's like, oh, he's a pastor. He's, he, you know, he's, is at MLK's church. Like that's really hard to be offensive in that 10 second test. And so that's why they are very predictably attacking him using a lot of his former uh, sermons out of context and with no context <laughs> and in, in a way that is obviously inflammatory. Um, and and I, I think, I think they're smart to do that because I don't, I really don't see a scenario where like 
Ossoff wins, but Purdue or sorry, Ossoff wins, but like Loeffler wins or Purdue wins and Warnock wins. Like it could happen, but I would be very, very surprised to see it. And and so I think the reason why they're going after Warnock, it's twofold. It's not so it's the positive thing, like I just hit on, but it's also the fact that like John Ossoff is just generic white dude. And I I know I've talked about this before, where he sort of has a Joe Biden problem for the Republicans. It's just like it's really hard to attack him and they've thrown everything they can possibly think of at him and none of it has worked. And so they've just like thrown up their hands and they, they've decided to put more money in trying to define Warnock. And I don't really know how that's going either because they've been attacking him really, really hard since November 3rd. And that was a month ago and he still has that slight lead. And the last thing I would say there, sorry, Kyle, I saw you about to jump in and then I then I just took it last second because I am filibustering. But this is really important. The polls were off in a lot of places in the United States. There's one place it wasn't, and that's Georgia. Now, giant caveat, runoffs are really, really hard to poll. And I expect this will be a hard race to poll. But like, I was genuinely surprised with just how close the the result in Georgia was to what the polls said, especially compared to what other states said. Because what did the polls say? They said Joe Biden has a minuscule league. So for me, I, I am operating under the assumption that like polls had troubles in a lot of states. Georgia basically did it right. And so what is something about the electorate, something about the people who are polling here, et cetera, et cetera. Like they, they feel confident in the work they did for the third. And so I, I, I doubt they're going to be like 10 points off, right? Like maybe they're two or three, but that gets you, of course, into the danger zone since it is so close. The other thing I, I think of, though, thinking about that strategy is I have found Raphael Warnock to be a little bit less of a compelling defender and messenger in that I found his performance at Sunday's debate to be a little bit underwhelming. I mean, I thought he was on message and I thought he said the right things. The thing that I found that Ossoff has done so well in the last few weeks in, in attacking David Perdue is this scorched earth campaign that Ossoff has run around David Perdue's financial decisions and how they relate to his overall politics. And he has been a completely uncompromising critic of David Perdue, really aggressive, really sharp in, in the debates. It's, it's, you know, I think part of the reason why Purdue decided not to show up for this one. And I haven't seen that same approach from Reverend Warnock against Kelly Leffler. And I thought that looking at what, ha- looking at what happened in the, in the debate on Sunday, Kelly Leffler was very scripted and it was very obvious that she was a la 2016 Marco Rubio in those Republican primary debates. She was going to basically read her message from memory to the camera. It was a little robotic and it wasn't all that compelling a performance, but she was going to hammer home the exact same points over and over again. Every time she referred to Warnock, she called him radical liberal Raphael Warnock and she hammered the exact same attacks of of things that Warnock has said as a pastor brought up the same kinds of things that are that are popping up in Breitbart articles and attack ads. All of that messaging is very aligned. It's very divorced from the things that I think people really care about. But she's very disciplined in giving that message, even if it's not super persuasive. And I didn't think that Warnock sort of came back at it with the same kind of energy, either to completely diffuse it and sort of make people feel like none of this stuff, that none of these attacks that Leffler is levying against Warnock, that none of those things are focused on the important thing that people care about right now, or to maybe even diffuse it with some kind of humor like he did in the the puppies ads that he's been running. That sort of energy, that sort of approach just didn't come off as well in the debate the other night to me. And I think there's a clear and simple reason for this. And it's just that like, he hasn't been doing this very long and hasn't been doing it nearly as long as Ossoff has. Cause I mean, Ossoff had trial by fire with the, you know, 2017 race against Karen Handel. Cause I know Karen Handel has lost a lot of races. And I've been very critical of Karen Handel constantly running and losing and wondering why the Republicans keep nominating her. But like, to be fair, Karen Handel, like she's, 
pretty good on the stump and she can make arguments and you know and Ossoff had to work against her and he's had a really long runway he was running for a really really long time against David Perdue he knew it for 100% no questions asked it's gonna be David Perdue whereas you know Warnock had to be like well is it gonna be Doug Collins is it gonna be Loeffler and the other thing too is like like I, you know, was raised in church, <laughs> uh, have been in a while due to a global pandemic. But like, I know my pat, my pat, pastor growing up really well. And if his sermons have been recorded and then taken out of context and then like getting thrown back at you, it would just be very hard and emotional for him to make coherent arguments <laughs> about that that were not like based in anger and very unChristian <laughs> thought or language. It was just, just because it's so frustrating when you're being passionate and when you're trying to communicate a message, you know, from the gospel, and someone takes it out of context and takes it in a way that is it's not meant to be, and just like knowing well that every single advisor has told you you can't relitigate this entire sermon blah 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 like it's just like it's a bad place to be in and it's one of those things too where you combine the fact where warnock is an incredible public speaker but he is not a skilled and constant debater because going back to uh you know the previous point about pastors like they are used to getting like 30 to 90 to you know two hours depending on how uh fired up your pastor is that day just un uninterrupted time where they get to say whatever they want and no one challenges them. Like that is, that is their job. Basically they get paid to do that. And so putting them in a situation where they're being challenged on these exact things, like it's just like really, really hard for anyone. And so like, I don't know if anyone would, would deal with that situation well, and especially not, you know, Warnock who, um, I mean, I don't know if they just didn't see this coming they probably should have, but um, I mean, it's so hard to know exactly what they're going to pull because he's just been behind the pulpit for so long. So, I mean, I, I don't. But the thing that I agree with you, Kyle, because I'm very sympathetic, but I agree like he should have done better because it's not like they released this ad like two days ago. Like basically since November 3rd, there's been like four or five clips that they've been hitting over and over and over. And it just would not have been that hard for him to practice a line and just get into it because the thing that I, I found, and I mean, I I kind of hate that this is the place that we've gotten into with uh, debates, both on like the presidential level, but even on the gubernatorial and senatorial level, is we're in this weird horseshoe <laughs> environment where the more scripted and prepared your lines are, it actually some sometimes like opens up better debate. I know this might sound like weird, but it's like when you try to do it conversationally, and that's what I really feel like a lot of like what Warnock was doing, like when he wasn't addressing the audience, it ends up being less of a debate and it just gets confusing because we talked about this with, with Biden's debates because I think this is exactly what Ossoff is doing and it works really well, is Biden would talk to Trump. But like his best moments, unquestionably, was when he just like looked at the camera and said, you know, I'm Joe Biden. I want to do blah, blah, blah. And that's basically what Ossoff does like 90 percent of the time in his debates of it. Just like he is saying, like what surprises me about Senator Purdue. And then he like looks at the camera <laughs> and says, you know, that David Purdue is a crook and that he did all these bad trades. And like he is communicating directly to the audience. And really with, with what makes this format effective is when that's what both candidates are doing and their message is debating each other, even though they aren't like having a conversation with each other. And unfortunately, I feel like that's actually what Loeffler was doing. Now, she's incredibly robotic when she's doing it, but she is trying to do that thing where she's just talking directly to the audience, saying that like Raphael Warnock is a radical liberal and I hate him. And that's why I went to his church and sat behind him because he's a radical liberal, you know? And it's just like, it's just, it is very effective. Uh, if done right. And I, I think that's where a lot of Warnock's problems came, where he was like trying to convince Kelly Leffler to not be mean to him. And it just wasn't working because she's there to be mean to him. I think in some ways, her unorthodox delivery, the fact that she was a little robotic and so repetitive, I think that actually brought the attention of the debate to her, even if you did not find that to be a very appealing way of delivering that message. And then constantly Reverend Warnock was basically responding to her all night. 
and sort of couldn't get out of sort of shifting the focus of the debate to better ground for him. Like I, I thought he was like, okay, like adequate enough in defending and explaining sort of the things that he was trying to say in the pulpit and in the larger themes of what he was trying to say. But he, I didn't feel that energy get pushed back on Leffler in a way that, that would have felt like he had more control over the debate, even though I thought she was boring and, you know, not very good. I'd still felt like she controlled things. Luke, after watching that debate and, and where we stand in this election right now, we've got a little bit under a month left to go until election day here on January 5th. What does Reverend Warnock need to do in this moment as the attention shifts to him and Republicans, you make very clear that they're going to target him and, and pin their hopes in this race on criticisms of him. What does he need to do to be successful between now and January 5th? Well, I think he set himself up for a lot of success because the first act he ran after the election, almost milliseconds after the election, I feel like was, you know, the excellent ag of saying, all the crazy attack ads are about to come get, you know, I mean, like he literally says, get ready, Georgia. <laughs> um, and, and so I feel like he's, he's set himself up for success. And so the thing that he needs to do now is just find a way to very systematically look at everything they're saying about him. You know, if he has a 30 second ad, five seconds need to be, you know, this is stupid and, and not important. And they're just trying to scare you. And then that other 25, you know, 20 seconds needs to be, and this is why I'm going to do all the boring things with Joe Biden we need to get the country back on track because um, they don't want to talk about that. And and that that is what I would think he needs to do. And I, I think <clears throat> I agree with you that they seem to be having a lot more trouble with this than Ossoff because the one thing I have again, not saying it means it's going to win, not saying it, you know, accounts for anything. But at least to me, I have always been incredibly impressed by his team's rapidness in modulating the message to meet the moment. So, of course, they're not changing what they stand for, what they believe in, but like how they talk about their message when they bring up what element of their message has always been so good. Because like within, you know, days of Joe Biden being president elect, his advertising shifted to, you know, like help me get elected and then I will go to Washington and work with Joe Biden and get the stuff done. Georgia needs done. And I just think that's really where Warnock needs to land. And I think it really highlights the bizarro world we're about to enter in our next topic, but it's just like Joe Biden won the state of Georgia. This is a fact that I'm just going to keep repeating until, <laughs> until it seems true uh, to everyone uh, since so many people don't believe it. But it's like he did. And to me, you know, trying to ride off the coattails of the winger of a state feels a lot smarter than me than to riding on the coattails of the loser of a state. And it is just very bizarre to me that that is what the, you know, two Republicans continue to do. And I, I'm not sure um, if there's anything Warnock needs to do beyond just trying to align himself with Joe Biden since Joe Biden won the state of Georgia. Let's shift our focus here to the Republicans a little bit. The other big thing that happened in a just a bonkers weekend in Georgia politics this weekend was President Trump's rally for Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue down in Valdosta. Uh, President Trump spoke for more than an hour and a half. Uh, and as you can imagine, when he speaks for an hour and a half, there was a lot of things that happened. He did make a pitch for his supporters to go out and vote for Leffler and Purdue in those two runoff races. But he also invited a primary challenge to Governor Kemp, invited Doug Collins to challenge him in two years. He also uh, repeatedly criticized Kemp and Raffensperger over and over again said that the a special session needed to be called was critical of certain aspects of Georgia's voting system kept coming back to the signature verification issue. Um, he, he did a lot. And I think the, the concern going into this for Republicans was whether or not Trump would do more harm than good, given that, Trump's main grievance since the election on November 3rd has been about how he claims 
without evidence that this was stolen from him. And so there was some, I think, legitimate concern as to whether or not Trump cared about these Senate races at all, whether or not he would even say the right things to get his people to back David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, um, and whether or not it would be obvious that he cared or, or didn't care. Luke, what did you think about sort of on balance for Republicans, whether Trump's appearance in Valdosta was a good thing for Purdue and Leffler or or a distraction that'll drag down their campaigns? I think if you were a Republican operative who wanted Trump to come down, you got exactly what you wanted. I'm just still firmly in the camp that the approach that would make you as a Republican operative think that the thing that is the key to winning the state of Georgia in this runoff is to invite the loser of the presidential election to rally for you is just like bad, right? It's like, it's just not right because the the problem is, is that you get Trump and all of his baggage, right? You don't get, you don't get the Trump you want. You get the Trump you get. And the Trump you get is one who spends equal, if not more time rallying about his grievances which specifically are about how he doesn't like the current governor and he doesn't like the current secretary of state because they won't either steal the election for him because Joe Biden actually won and he wants them to steal it for him or that the election was so badly run by these folks that it was fraud. And again, <laughs> to, to my like great confusion and just exasperation, and I will just keep pointing out the fact like it's a really weird argument to say Georgia's election system is a fraud and a sham and this election got stolen from me in Georgia. Now please go vote because it's really important. Like that just seems discongruent. It seems like a bad message. And so to me, any time you're on that bad message is bad time spent for you. So even if in between the the election was stolen from me in Georgia, the stake I won, if you say vote, you know, vote for David Perdue and De Kelly Loeffler, it's just very strange because you are having to acknowledge at the same time that like the thing I'm asking you to do didn't work because it got stolen from us. And it also is really, really bad for Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue because while they have said that Brad Raffensperger should resign for reasons and that things happened and the election was bad. Like, they, they have not been very specific, and they have also not called for any of the more, at least to my knowledge, radical things such as just saying Trump won and appointing electors uh, for Trump. And so they're, they're in this horrible place for them uh, where they, they're, they're getting hit on both sides. They're getting hit for not acknowledging reality, you know, they, uh, where <clears throat> they're getting hit for not acknowledging reality and refusing to accept that Joe Biden is the president-elect, and they are also being hit for not supporting the, you know, autocratic overthrow of the state of Georgia, where Brian Kemp just decides who the president is. Yeah, I thought it was notable at the rally that five of the Republican state senators who are trying to get a special session convened, you know, Governor Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, uh, have both said, have both poured cold water on the idea said that it's not going to happen. And even if they called a special session, you couldn't use that special session to overturn the election. Um, the, the five Republican state senators who are spearheading that effort got called out and praised by name by Trump at that rally on Saturday. The, the other thing that stood out to me wasn't necessarily that Trump did a lot of damage at that rally, but it was that all of the skepticism that he has raised has sort of drawn battle lines for Republicans around this issue. And when Purdue and Leffler were invited on stage to speak briefly, the crowd was not really excited to hear from them was chanting at them fight for Trump the entire time and just didn't seem very engaged in backing them. And so even though Trump said the right things at the rally, the crowd's response seemed to be very different than um, what I think Leffler and Purdue would have hoped. I think on the other side of that though, 
you know, this is something the kicking up dirt over the election, I think, is something that does keep his voters engaged. And I think if he had been quiet and sort of slumped off the scene, I think that would have sort of sucked some of the enthusiasm from his voters. And so it's a question of whether or not those people who have all this like pro-Trump fight for Trump energy, whether or not Leffler and Purdue can kind of harness that energy, redirect it towards these negative criticisms that they're making of particularly of, of Reverend Warnock and still capitalize on that energy and get those people to vote anyways, despite what we're seeing on the surface about claims about the election. I think that's sort of the dynamic to watch for his voters because, you know, the thing that was interesting in some of the data that's come out since the election is the turnout rate in the counties that, that David Perdue won um, was a little bit higher than it was for, for John Ossoff. Um, Chris Hazlett, who, who writes at this great blog, Trouble in God's Country, that focuses on issues important in rural Georgia, he looked at some of this data and he said he found that in the 131 counties that David Perdue won, voter turnout was 68.8%. And John Ossoff only won 28 counties. Obviously, he won a lot of the bigger ones. Um, but turnout in those counties was only 65.2%. And there were some places... Uh, Democratic strongholds where turnout was under 60%. Clayton County, Doherty County, Muskogee County, all three of those counties had turnout under 60% in this election that has dominated our lives for the last uh, year or so. Um, and so, you know, that that question of enthusiasm and, and can it be harnessed, can they redirect it towards sort of an anti-Warnock, anti-Ossoff sentiment? I think that's the positive case for them out of this rally, but it, you know, it definitely feels undetermined at this point. Yeah. And I, I think you're right, Kyle, that that is the fundamental question, you know, which to, to like put bluntly is the, the people who really like Trump, who only showed up for Trump this time, like they probably like these, are like a lot of these people didn't even show up for him in 16. Like they, they showed up this time though. That really does seem to be who Kelly Loeffler, who David Perdue, have been focused on. Like, that's who they care about. They want the rabid Trump voters who don't really pay attention to politics or care about the details. They just, like, enjoy Trump and enjoy his Trumpiness. That's who they care about and who they're focused on and who they think will carry them to the United States Senate again. And to me... That is a very, very strange decision to make strategically. And, and the reason why is where I started, which is these are people who do not vote for anyone not named Donald J. Trump. And so I, I don't really have a whole lot of confidence that they're going to show up. And this, I feel like, is particularly a problem for them because while it is undeniably true that Republicans have an advantage in runoffs in Georgia historically, keyword historically, the reason that is is because white people in the suburbs vote for them. And that is a population that is heavily, heavily, heavily educated and has more money and is more likely to vote. And so what I think they're doing and why I really think they're making a miscalculation, even if it's not for this particular race, it is a miscalculation into the future, is that they are just like throwing Molotov cocktails at voters who have been reliable for them for a long time, hoping that they will be afraid and trying to like get them to be afraid using messages that really excite people who don't vote that often, but like have around the country shown to turn off people who used to vote for them who are reliable voters. And and that is the thing that is, like makes the strategy so strange to me, just to put it in more concrete terms and be really specific here, it's just like they have chosen a message that the suburban voters of America have resoundingly rejected as clearly as they possibly can by going from being some of the most hardcore Republican voters and donors to some of the most hardcore democratic you know voters and donors. And so rather than like trying to like stop the bleeding 
they have doubled down on this approach. And in this runoff, that seems really risky to me because those are very, very reliable voters. Those are people who show up to runoffs because they vote all the time. And the people they're targeting and focusing on are people who don't vote all the time. It would be really easy, I think, easier than they probably think, for them to do an Etch-A-Sketch moment and just like, yeah, we're normal moderate Republicans and it's fine and we're going to like, you know, work with Joe Biden and get this coronavirus thing handled and it's going to be fine. Like, it would be really easy for them to do that and try to like win back the voters who like maybe even voted for Joe Biden and then voted for them the first time. But I feel like they've just doubled down on crazy town so hard that they might lose some of those people because they are basically putting themselves into opposition to Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp, two Republicans and candidates and elected officials that those folks like and many of them voted for two years ago. And so I, I think it's just like weird, weird, bad politics for them potentially in the short term, but definitely in the long term. Well, the other thing is if it engenders this backlash among these suburban moderate voters, what this turnout data also shows you is that there aren't a whole lot more votes that they can squeeze out of rural Georgia. You know, they, they've been good at increasing that turnout. And so there just isn't a lot of turnout left there to get. Whereas for Democrats, if you look at that number, particularly that number 55.9% turnout in Clayton County, Democrats continue to mount an aggressive voter registration, voter turnout strategy. And there's room for them to grow in some of these bigger counties where they did not have Democratic enthusiasm at a level that they would have liked. Um, and so it was also interesting that Ryan Anderson at, at Georgia Votes um, he publishes all this data related to requests for absentee ballots and, and turnout and voter registration, things like that. He uh, found in some data that 70,000 requested mail-in ballots so far in the runoff are from people who did not vote in the general election in November, and that those ballots skew towards voters who are between 18 and 29, and they're also more likely to be Black, Hispanic, and Asian voters relative to white voters. And so if Democrats are successful in continuing to push up voter turnout in some of the places where it was a little underwhelming in the general election, um, they have room to grow there and Republicans don't have a lot of room to grow. And as you said, Luke, have kind of turned their back on some of the swingier voters who they may have been able to get back into their column. Well, I, I wouldn't even, I, I would, I would argue against that. Just one, one little thing in Georgia, these were not swing voters. These were hardcore Republicans through and through day after day, year after year. These were the people that the Jason Carters and Michelle nuns of the world, God bless them, tried so hard to flip and put everything in their campaigns to flipping and could not do it. And so these are people that while, yeah, they flipped towards Democrats recently, it would not be inconceivable that they would flip right back to Republicans with Trump gone. And so to me, it is just, it is so, so strange to me that they are just burning every bridge they possibly can to the suburbs with this strategy because they are giving them nothing, nothing at all. And what I mean by that is like being someone who is in the Atlanta TV market where there's a lot of money spent trying to talk to these voters. There are two types of Republican ads running right now. There is the, my opponent is a radical socialist who wants to burn your house down. And there is the, I am totally not a crook. I was exonerated for all the crimes I committed, I guess. No, oh, I didn't commit those crimes. I was exonerated. So it's just like, it's so strange to me because, you know, on the one hand, they are doing the Trump thing of just like accuse your can't your opponent of all these insane things and hope something sticks to the wall, which again did not work because Joe Biden won the state of Georgia. And then they're, the other thing they are doing is like preemptively like making make me deny it. It's the LBJ thing of just like constantly talking about the thing that they are afraid of. And I think it's just because they they have these huge vulnerabilities and they don't really have any solid concrete ground to attack their opponents on. And I, I just I honestly think they just don't have any better ideas than this and that they're just hoping it works out um, because as long as this race has been going on, as long as 2020 is, you know, being an eternal year that seems like it'll never, ever end. And, you know, 
this election won't even end <laughs> by the end of 2020. Uh, like they just they haven't offered anything else, and I I've just been really surprised by that, and and um really thinking it's gonna cause a lot of long term damage to the Republican Party. Yeah, Luke, that actually brings me to you know this thought about where Republicans are organizing their politics around. Going forward, you made this observation a few weeks back that Republicans in Virginia, when they started to lose their control of the legislature and of state government in Virginia, they didn't respond by tacking back to the center and trying to get back some of the voters that were slipping away from them. Instead, they went full crazy town and um, lost that state, lost basically any foothold in that state really quickly. I wonder if we're watching that same thing happen for Republicans in Georgia. I think one notable distinction there is that as of today, they still have full control over state government. And so it's interesting to watch them react on the state level to this broader conversation around Trump's claims that the election was stolen from him. And this is kind of operating on two tracks right now. One, we're seeing several lawsuits that have been filed in uh, federal courts based in our state that are alleging basically based on conspiracy theories and, and really flimsy facts that this election was stolen from President Trump and the courts and the state needed to intervene to send Trump electors to the Electoral College and, and not Biden electors. That stuff, I think if you want to learn more about that, you should follow Stephen Fowler from Georgia Public Broadcasting on Twitter. He's been taking a close look at these cases. In some ways, I don't think they're actually that interesting because they're being dismissed by the courts pretty quickly. But there's been a lot of action there. And it also resulted in Rudy Giuliani coming to the state capitol and bringing his COVID-19 with him, which was very distressing. The other thing that's happening, though, is we're starting to see Republican state lawmakers organize around ideas aimed at making it harder to vote in the state. And for the first time today, on Tuesday, the day that we're recording, we saw Republicans begin to back what some of these concrete policies are. I mean, a, a press release from the Senate Republican, state Senate Republican caucus, they came out in favor of getting rid of no excuse absentee balloting, of requiring voter ID for the four cause absentee balloting that they would leave in place, and for getting rid of the ballot drop boxes that um, have made it easier for voters amidst this pandemic to return their mail-in ballots without having to deal with problems with the post office or opt to then go vote in person if they felt like they couldn't get their mail-in ballot back in time. Concrete policies that Luke, in my view, would just obviously make it more difficult for people to use absentee ballots. And what they seem to believe based on this is that that would make it harder for Democrats to vote and make it harder for them to win elections going forward, given that Democrats have now proven that they could win a statewide election in this state. What did you make of that development and in the place that we're going of Republicans using all of this dirt they've kicked up about election fraud to as a rationale for putting some of these policies in place next session? Well, I would start with I told you so. And you you we we both said this. We both said they would do this. It was the most predictable thing uh that, you know, could could be imagined as a response to uh what we've seen happen since November 3rd. That being said though, the Georgia State Senate has a reputation for being terrible and inflammatory and you know, I've I've made the joke on this show that every good and happy thing that happens at the General Assembly goes to the Georgia State Senate to die and become terrible. Um, and and so I, I really think that is primarily what we're seeing here because it was not the entire caucus signing on to it. It was uh, some of the uh, more radical members and some of the outgoing members <laughs> as well, well uh, who the, don't get to vote in the Senate anymore. Um, well, the press release about these absentee balloting ideas was released from the majority caucus as a whole. There was another letter praising one of these crazy lawsuits from uh, okay. where Texas is actually suing Georgia. Yes, and that's that one right. was Thank signed you. by Thank a handful for, of members. But yeah, fixing me on that, which yeah, just, just as a quick note, that is a bad lawsuit. That is 
I mean, it's it's basically a, a blank piece of paper. Like, <laughs> honestly, it would have a more chance of succeeding if it was a blank piece of paper because the arguments on it are so bad that I I imagine it will be dismissed without comment, just like the uh, Pennsylvania case was um, by the Supreme Court. Um, but and it's also strange for me for Georgians to advocate for giving other states the power to overthrow their elections. That is a really strange precedent. I, I don't think you would want to set since there are states other than Texas that have lawyers like New York and California. Um, but I digress. Um, the, so yes, thank you for the correction, Kyle. We, we care about facts here at, at Peach Pog. Um, and so the, the, the Senate Republicans as a whole, okay, threw, threw this out, but you know, the house is still a thing and the history in Georgia has been that the Georgia state Senate will propose things like this and propose other, uh, bad ideas, and they will go to the house to die or, you know, or get modified and wiggled down to something less bad. Because uh, previously, you know, I remember when I was working in the state house and Abrams was still there, there were several uh, things they wanted to do to make it harder to vote in Georgia in which the Democrats successfully fought and negotiated away. And so I, I, I really think. And I might be proving wrong here because, again, the Republicans do have the votes, and if they want to do it, and if that's their priority, they have the votes to do it. But I just – the thing that is so, so crazy to me is, again, this is just like a repeat of what I was just ranting about with the suburban voters is like literally up until this election. This is the first election that I'm aware of where statewide Republicans were hurt by absentee ballots more than they were helped because – and I mean, listen to Hacks on Tap, listen to any Republican strategist talking any other year than the year 2020, and they would be, I mean, just raving about how great absentee ballots are for Republicans and how they have managed to win races doing successful absentee ballot campaigns. And so, I mean, it's it's not even just bad politics, it's bad electoral strategy because they benefit from them and this is the only year i'm aware of in the state of georgia where they haven't and so it's just very very reactive and stupid politically for them because it really just is doubling tripling quadrupling down on the we don't care about governance we don't care about anything but trump whatever trump says is what we want to do and like i understand that he has a chokehold on the party but like you guys just won your races and you are safe for two years basically and so it's just like i would think this fever dream is going to die down and you'd like to win elections in the future rather than like going out of your way to spending your time during a global health crisis of saying we as the Senate GOP are number one priority because if, like they haven't put out anything about what they're going to do to save the Georgia economy uh, from coronavirus or even just set itself up for success um, you know coming into 2021 like this is their priority this is their there's you know banger achievement that they're going to do making it harder to vote because there are a ton of <laughs> Republicans in the state of Georgia who have used absentee ballots for a long time and they like it and they don't want it taken away from them and so like i just don't think this is going to be like this big thing that people come to the capitol and rally for them and give them money and say thank you for making it harder for me to do absentee ballots like i i don't think that's gonna work for them because the other thing that has been proven already is that like your your voter suppression tactics aren't nearly as effective as you think it is bud because if you telegraph that you're going to get rid of absentee ballots, well, you know what we're going to do? You know, Fair Fight and other voting voter activation organizations are just going to get people to early vote in different ways. And voters were very adaptable this cycle. The, the success at which I saw voters go from, you know, requesting absentee ballots to playing on playing into mail to like actually realizing that it was too late to put it in the mail and need to go into a Dropbox instead. Like that, those campaigns were incredibly effective. And so I just don't think this is going to be the saving of the Republican Party that these, you know, stupid hacks in the Senate thinks is going to be. It's really just going to be another nail in the coffin of them proving that they have nothing to offer Georgia voters except stupid political partisan positions. And I, I think, you know, aptly referring back to myself and what I've said about Virginia is like, I think they're basically just saying, yeah, that sounds good to us. Let's just keep it in crazy town and see how long we can ride the train. Well, the key difference, I think, is the fact that they still control all levers of government in the state. And 
to you me, know, Virginia I think... does has only Virginia has like excuse only absentee voting. I think so. Uh, didn't really help them there. Well, no, but I, I think you know, as a policy matter, what they'll what they'll actually try to do is they'll actually try to build in any excuses that benefit Republican voters. Like you can not have an excuse to absentee ballot if you're over like fifty five. They'll probably structure those rules in a way to make it so that effectively as many Republican voters as possible don't need an excuse, but Democrats need an excuse. I mean, they can't actually say that only Democrats need an excuse, but if they could, they would do it. Um, it, The other thing though, I think is it's an interesting measure of how they will harness sort of this general Trumpian energy that's skeptical of elections whether or not that becomes a motivating factor for Trumpy voters to turn around and continue to back some of these Republicans. I mean, I think the five Republicans that got called out by name by Trump at the rally on Saturday, their bet is that they have probably now insulated themselves against any kind of primary challenge because they are jumping on this crazy town train Um regarding all of this skepticism about elections. And if, and I think that's sort of what is sort of what they're reaching for here is some concrete thing that they can do that harnesses some of this Trump energy. And they'll say that all of this stuff is what they'll, well, what they'll say when they're in front of Republican audiences back home is that all of this stuff, we put it into place because the election system let down president Trump. And maybe they'll say that this is going to be the way that he comes back and he wins Georgia when he wins his way back into the White House in 2024. I I just think that that's oh I, the I interesting think it's thing fine about politics their politics for all these state senators individually. Like I don't think anyone's going to lose their race over it, but I think for the bleeding that they're experiencing in the suburbs, like that's only going to continue. Because um, I mean, they also get to draw the district lines uh, this year, uh, since Democrats did not, you know, pick up enough seats in the state house or state senate to flip it. So I mean, I mean, it's it, they're making it quite clear that they're wanting to go the route of North Carolina, and you know, get one, you know, find find the line that is only Republicans get to vote in the state of Georgia, and go one step back uh, from that, so that they you know don't get. A challenge in the Supreme Court for <laughs> what they do. Um, and I'm, I'm sure they will be anyway, because they're going to take it as far as they possibly can. And I don't, you know, I, I just don't think this is good political strategy long term, because even if they it, it's delaying actions, right? I mean, it's it's exactly what I was saying, talking about the Purdue Leffler race is that they have nothing to offer. They have no political agenda that will be helpful for Georgians. And so this is what they have to offer. They have, we're just going to rig the game. So it keeps coming up heads every time. And I just don't think that's a long-term political strategy because eventually people get fed up with it. The other thing is, I think it said, actually, I think we should make clear that it's a pretty alarming development for this state, given where this state's politics have been for the last 15, 20, 30 years and where the state's governance has been, that Republicans have always had this element of their party, especially within the state party, but they have largely kept that closeted away. And during the Sonny Perdue administration and into the Nathan Deal administration, their governance of the state wasn't dramatically different than the governance of the state under Roy Barnes and and governors before him that were Democrats. And I think we're watching our state slip into, you mentioned North Carolina, Kansas is another good example of this, slipping away from the kind of leadership we've had for the past 30 or 40 years in this state into a hyper-partisan, hyper-dysfunctional type of leadership that is going to have cascading effects on our business climate, on the administration of important things like our healthcare system, our education system, that a lot of these things are going to become political footballs instead of places for real serious governance. And that I think is like a real concrete loss from where we've been since the 1990s. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that's why I'm 
so frustrating about this and so like fired up about it also probably laying off some steam uh, from finals but um i mean it's just like georgia has been better than this for a long time and i mean i actually want to give brian kemp some credit here where he is not like back down because i i mean sure it's the law and he's probably afraid he'd be prosecuted if he didn't just certify the election but like he could have like really gone in a different direction on this thing and he could have really been like i don't want to do it and i think it was stolen but i also don't you know i have to follow the law like you know he very much said like it looks like buying one following the law blah 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 and and so like considering that and this is a dark thing <laughs> i have to say but it's true is like i think like brian kemp has to be the the moderate sane centrist person <laughs> for the state of georgia right because like nathan deal had to play this role a lot and i think he was very successful and um did the state a lot of good when he was willing to step into the breach and basically say i will do the politically unpopular thing and veto this bill because it's a bad idea and it's gonna hurt the state and it's gonna hurt you know it's gonna be just too far and kemp hasn't really been tested on that yet because the only thing we've even done in that ballpark is the the heartbeat bill and that is just kind of a different category um as as we've discussed previously and but so, to that point though he did initially try to ward off the full heartbeat bill i think they wanted some kind of a trigger related to the supreme court it was something short of what they ultimately yeah, he, passed. He, he initially advocated for a trigger bill instead of the heartbeat bill. And he basically got shouted down by the right flank of his party and then ultimately co-opted that effort and touted its passage. Yeah. And I, I mean, the point I was getting at is that I feel like abortion is just a different issue since there are a lot of uh, religious <laughs> ideas embedded in that. Whereas as as much as trump is a cult it is not yet a religion um and so i i think i would hope that he will have an easier time fighting back some of those things but i mean it's it's difficult because and this is something i was laughing about uh to myself in the dark ironic way i laugh at most things these days but like so much of these statements both the one from the gop leadership uh in the senate and the uh, senator signing on to you know texas having the power to overthrow georgia elections um they use the word republic a lot with a capital r and they think they're being so smart you know talking about oh the united states is a republic not a democracy and it's like no this is this is not what the founders meant when the you know like when they set up the the government to be this way like that that is not the values in which our documents are instilled and it is there there has been a clear line throughout the united states history of expanding the franchise leading to good things and restricting the franchise leading to bad things and so if you are ever on the side of let's make it really hard to vote history will look upon you badly and it might not for 10 years but in 20 30 40 years let me assure you you will not be the heroes of the story um because you will be the you know, you will either be the people who eventually are beaten and cast aside, or you will be the people noted as the architects or of the failure of democracy in the United States. And nobody wants that to be their byline in a history book. Um, but I mean, that's really all you're going to achieve if you continue down this route. I don't know who I'm talking to right now, but I hope they're out there and listening because it's true. Like, that's where this is going for them. And I, it's just sad because... There was a long time, I mean, when we started the show four years ago, a lot of the times what we would be saying is like, wow, isn't it great that we did not do that crazy thing that X other state did? And I agree with you. I'm just equally concerned that Georgia is going to now be one of those states where all the time all we're saying is, wow, we did X stupid thing, really thought we wouldn't, but here we are. And the thing that's scary is in the short run, there isn't a path to political accountability for that. I mean, we, I, you know, and we'll talk yes, more about is. this going there forward. Vote on January fifth. <laughs> well, there's that. Because I, I mean, sincerely, I think, I think, and I think this is probably where we need to stop. Because if I keep ranting anymore, that we will lose every listener we have. Um, is that the Republicans think this is going to work, and there is no better sign to them that it's not going to work than them losing 
an election in which that is their messaging. Because their messaging is that Democrats are illegitimate. They are not part of this republic we are building in the state of Georgia. And we will do everything we can to delegitimize them. And if you support those efforts, vote for us. And I think there is nothing that will make the futility of that clearer than them losing on January 5th. Uh, because they'll still try, and they very well might be successful, and they might get rid of at-will voting. They might get rid of all early voting. I don't know what they'll do. They're going to try a lot of things. But I think if we are able to defeat them when that is their principal argument, long-term that shows that that's not what the state of Georgia is interested in doing, and that will hopefully give some good-minded, good-hearted, constitutional-following Republicans in the state, because I know they are there, the you know, motivation slash ammunition they need to stand up for common basic sense and American values. And so I, I am very hopeful that we can win that election because while you are right, Kyle, it will not result in direct accountability for any of these folks because it's really going to be two years before they have any more of it. Um, I think it will be a clear flashing warning sign to them that maybe they should hold their horses on going to crazy town. Hopefully. I mean, and I think it puts a lot of pressure on the 2022 statewide races here in our state. You know, we've, I think we'll debate on how bad redistricting will be for Democrats, but I think that creates a little bit of a barrier that makes a governor's race in 2022 super important. All right. Well, I think that is where we are going to leave it for today. More than um, enough. It's been more than enough. Um, you'll hear from us sporadically. I think you'll you'll definitely hear one good preview episode from us as we get closer to January 5th, but we've got the holidays coming up. And to be honest, this, you know, aside from looking forward to legislative session, these are the two biggest stories in Georgia politics right now, I think. But in some ways, they're very static. And so I've at times found it difficult to talk about them or to find new things to say because... A lot of what we were saying a few weeks ago about how we thought this would go, I think it's playing out exactly as anticipated. Um, now we're saying so, it louder and with more confidence yes. <laughs> and fear. <laughs> a lot more fear. <laughs> On that note, we hope we haven't given you too much fear. Um, happy holidays. <laughs> happy holidays. And uh, you'll hear from us again uh, before the fifth or before the world ends. Take your pick. Bye, all Bye. Go vote. Go vote, please. Yeah, please, please go vote. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.